For the past group of months, we've been going through the book of Proverbs, and we're, we're getting closer and closer to the final chapters. Today, we're actually going to be looking at chapter 23, or portions of chapter 23 of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to be talking about the advantage that it is to find your sufficiency in Christ. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, we're in Proverbs chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to verses 10 and 11. Proverbs 23, starting with verse 1. This is what it says. It says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And then if you jump to verse 10, it says, Do not move an ancient landmark, or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to spend some time together this morning looking at your Word. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that your Word reminds us that we find our sufficiency through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at this portion of Scripture today, we pray that you'd illustrate for our hearts the ways in which this, this Scripture is, is helping us to recognize that, the, the ways in which this Scripture is pointing us in the direction of understanding that. And we're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your Word together now. We, we commit our hearts and our minds over to you and pray that your Spirit would do His work. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few days ago, I participated in an online meeting with a variety of other ministry leaders and other business leaders, and this is actually something that we've started to do regularly. We've been doing this for the past group of months, and what we're doing is we're trying to hold each other accountable, we're trying to exchange ideas, and we're also trying to motivate one another. If anybody feels like they're in a slump, we just want to confess that and admit that and then help each other through that particular season. And so we had this meeting the other day, again, variety of ministry leaders, variety of business leaders joining together in these meetings. And partway through the meeting, and I actually asked this woman's permission to share this with you today, one of the, the people that were uh, in the meeting, a, a woman named B. Evans, she lives in Colorado, and she expressed some frustration on Friday with what she was working on. Uh, I'm a big listener of podcasts. I know many of you are listeners of podcasts. Well, she records a podcast, and she was attempting to record a new episode of that podcast, but she kept tripping over her words, and she kept making mistakes, and she kept doing it over and over and over again, and, and it was forcing her to have to re-record several times in a row. And here's the irony. Her show is primarily about not labeling yourself in unhealthy ways. And as she was making these mistakes and trying to make this recording, she kept saying out loud while she was doing it, but still kind of under her breath, you stink. She's like, you stink. She'd make a mistake. She'd go, you stink. And then she'd keep trying to record an episode about not labeling yourself in unhealthy ways. You stink over and over again. And finally, the irony struck her. 
And she said, this is something I need to just confess to the group so that if I admit this out loud that I'm, I'm doing this, then they could kind of help me rein this back in and, and get back on track. And so it was comical, but it was also helpful. But I asked her if I could share that with us today, and she, and she gave me permission. And the reason I asked if I could share that was because how many times have we done the same exact thing? How many times over the course of your life have you labeled yourself in an unhealthy way or preached something to your heart that really doesn't belong there, something that you really shouldn't be saying to yourself over and over again? And in that same line of thinking, how many times have you ever tried to find your sense of worth or your sense of sufficiency in things like how well you perform at some sort of task or maybe how much you own? Or maybe how other people start to see you? Is there any long-term advantage to doing things like that? I would say that there is not. But those are things that we tend to do more often than we probably realize. Well, one of the great blessings that we experience as followers of Jesus Christ is the advantage of finding our sense of sufficiency through Jesus Himself. In Him and through Him, we're made a new creation. And we no longer need to try and find our sense of sufficiency or our sense of worth through worldly or temporary things, or really through anything less than Jesus himself. And we're looking at Proverbs chapter 23 today. And as we look at Proverbs chapter 23, we're going to look at this portion of Scripture, and we're going to correlate this with some of the other Scriptures that speak of these issues. But what you're going to see is the fact that there are consequences that can actually come when we try to find our sense of worth or our sense of sufficiency through anything other than Jesus. It could actually cause us to be taken advantage of, or it could actually cause us to take advantage of others in unhealthy ways if we try to find our sense of sufficiency through anything other than Jesus. And we see this illustrated in a variety of ways in this portion of Scripture, and let me show you a few of the ways. The first is this, and I'm going to reread verses 1 through 3 in just a second. But here in this portion of Scripture, it reminds us, don't let yourself be taken advantage of easily. Look at what it says in the first three verses. Let me reread those. It says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Now, let me give you a tiny bit of background on what was going on at the time that this was being written. So during the era when Solomon sat on the throne of Israel, and Solomon was the one writing these things down, but during this era when Solomon was sitting on that throne of Israel, he was one of the most prominent leaders in the world. He was famous. He was well-known. Solomon was known for a couple things. He was known for his wisdom, primarily, but he was also known for his wealth. He was known for his wisdom. He was known for his wealth. These were things that people were aware of in regard to him. And he was also someone who was prone to make diplomatic agreements with other heads of state. We even see some of the marriages that he was involved in were related to making diplomatic agreements with other heads of state. This was something that Solomon was doing regularly. He was interacting with other leaders. He was interacting with other diplomats. He was interacting with nobles. And he would make agreements with these people in a variety of ways, like any leader does of any generation. And so Solomon was well aware of how other leaders tended to operate. He was well aware of how royalty and nobility tended to operate. And he was thinking about these things as the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these things down. Now, in that era, just like in our era, it wasn't uncommon for a person of great wealth or a person of great prominence to maybe try to use their riches 
to attempt to influence others to do their bidding. And so for a season, they might try to flatter a person that they were trying to take advantage of, or they might, they might try to shower them with, with kind words, or they might try to shower them with gifts, or they might try to invite them to an opulent meal in order to uh, impress them in one way or another. But Solomon expressed caution about these things in the opening verses of Proverbs 23. So think about Solomon's setting. Think about the context in which he lived in. Think about the things that he was surrounded by continually. He was a man of great wealth, so he was surrounded by opulence. So opulence at this point of his life wasn't something that impressed him the same way that it would impress somebody of lesser means. Solomon wasn't impressed by these things like someone of lesser means might be impressed. So he could see beyond the opulence. He could see beyond the extravaganza, and he could perceive motives that might be hidden from a more common observer. And so he uses some strong language to caution the reader about some of the things that they might not notice in the midst of that experience. Look at some of the strong things he says here. He encourages the reader to observe carefully what's put before them. So that's one of the things he said, observe carefully. So he's saying, don't be casual about this, notice this. Observe carefully what's put before you. And then he says this, and put a knife to your throat if you're tempted to eat the opulent delicacies that are put before you and then be taken advantage of. He's saying, put a knife to your throat. Now, is he literally saying, put a knife to your throat? Obviously, he's not. This is poetic language, right? This is, this is hyperbole, right? He's not saying literally do that. But he's saying, take extravagant means and measures to stop yourself from being led astray. Do whatever you need to do to stop yourself from falling prey to the opulence that's put before you. Don't be deceived by it. Don't be taken advantage of easily. Have you ever been taken advantage of by someone that you trusted? You don't have to call any names out out loud, you know, in case they're in the room, right? Uh, I think all of us probably have. I can remember even times as a child being taken advantage of by friends. And then same thing happens when you're a teenager. But here's the thing. Same thing happens as an adult. How many times have you ever purchased something based on advertising, uh, advertising and then you, then you get it home and you discover, this is nothing like what I was promised. I was promised that if I bought this car, I would have a whole new life. And my life seems very much the same. In fact, I feel a little bit depressed now. <laughs> I remember when I was a teenager, we used to visit my grandparents quite frequently. They lived down in Florida. And I got to tell you, I think a lot about Florida during the months of January and February, especially on days like today when I keep hearing that we're about to get, I don't know how much snow we're getting. Are we getting eight inches? Are we getting 12 inches? Do you know that I saw a report yesterday that said, if you use the Canadian model, we're getting 36 inches. I was like, we don't use anything from Canada if that's what it's going to say, right? Nothing. No Canadian model in relation to snow, although Tim Horton's coffee is delicious. <laughs> However, I remember we used to go and visit my grandparents down in Florida quite frequently. They lived in Plant City, Florida, and I developed a great uh, affinity for the state of Florida and for visiting there, particularly when it's cold up here in the Northeast. And I remember at one point we were down visiting them, and uh, a guy approached my father and invited him to bring the family to this buffet meal. And, you know, my dad, being a frugal man, said, I'm listening. You know, he's got several kids, and we were teenagers, and we like to eat. And so he said, I'm listening. And the guy said, yeah, come. You just listen to the presentation. And at the end of the presentation, uh, you, you get free tickets to Disney. And my dad was like, 
free food, free tickets to Disney. I love what you're saying. And so we went to this meal. We went to this buffet. It was not impressive. <laughs> I mean, it was okay, but there wasn't really a whole lot for, for us to eat like we thought there would be. And it dragged on forever. It just went on and on and on and on. This presentation, this quick presentation, and they keep you there because of the promise of giving you those free tickets to Disney World. And so we sat through it, and at the end, they finally gave my dad the free tickets to Disney World, but he had to listen to hours of presentation on buying a timeshare in Central Florida. So he felt a bit duped. We felt a little bit suckered into that. But sometimes that happens to you, and a meal put before you is a great way to deceive somebody, and you have Solomon using that as an example here. Well, deception comes at us from many examples in life. There are many angles or examples of it. And at times, we may experience it from other people. So at times, there are people that might try to deceive you. But it's also wise if you take this one level deeper and you realize that there is a spiritual component to deception that we need to be extra concerned with. Because the devil loves to put an impressive spread of his false promises before us. And he wants to attempt to lure us away from Christ and unto himself. And he likes to take the things of this world and just kind of put them before us like it's some beautiful spread so that we'll try to find our sense of worth, our sense of value, our sense of sufficiency in anything other than Christ. But Scripture warns us, don't be deceived by that. Don't let yourself be easily taken advantage of. I love what the Apostle Paul says in two specific spots. One is in Colossians 2, verse 8. And in Colossians 2, verse 8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So elsewhere, things like this are referred to here where he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's like this idea of doctrines of demons, false promises, Wicked deception that finds its origin in Satan. He's saying, don't be taken captive by that. Don't be duped by that empty deceit. Rather, you know, we're to be people who are focused on Jesus Christ and finding our sufficiency through Him. Don't be deceived into believing that you could find your sense of worth or sufficiency through anything other than Jesus. I also love what Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says it this way. And he's speaking prophetically. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about some things that will take place then. But tell me if we don't feel kind of ripe as a culture for the very things that Paul references in 2 Thessalonians. He says this. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So what's Paul saying there? Saying effectively, if you have a a life, if you have a mind, if you have a heart that rejects the truth of the gospel and embraces worldliness, you are wide open to being spiritually deceived. You are set up to be deceived. He says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So if we refuse to love the truth, if we refuse to to, uh, embrace the truth of the gospel, we're setting ourselves up to be deceived by falsehood, by spiritual error. And so because our sufficiency is in Christ, 
we don't need to allow ourselves to be easily taken advantage of. And when you tie that back to what Solomon is saying here in the opening verses of Proverbs 23, you can see he illustrates that for us on the human level, but it applies on the spiritual level as well. Well, Let's jump back to Proverbs 23 and see what else Solomon says here. Because if we're finding our sufficiency in Christ, one of the other things that we'll be able to understand is that it's of no advantage to us to work ourselves to death. Now, what does that mean? It's of no advantage to us to work ourselves to death. Look at what he says in Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. It says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I had a conversation very recently with a man who lives in Australia. He grew up in Australia. He's Australian through and through. And he was joking about some of the differences between Australians and Americans. And I enjoyed hearing his perspective. But one of the things that he said was this, Americans are all work. He said, Americans are all work. You don't know how to take a break. Americans are all work. You don't know how to take a break. Is that true? Since when are our Australian friends so critical of us? Come on, Australia, what's the deal? I actually think he was right, though. I think he's right. You know, it was funny when he said it, and I thought, yeah, that was brutally honest, but it was true. Americans are all work. You guys don't know how to take a break. That's what he said. Well, it's interesting when you think about that in the back of your head, and then look at what Solomon says in the verses that we just read, verses 4 and 5 of Proverbs 23, because Solomon gives us some interesting counsel here about that in this passage. So here you have Solomon. He's someone who's been blessed with great wealth, but he could testify that wealth wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. He could testify to the fact that it didn't satisfy the deepest longing of his soul. It wasn't worth devoting your life to it. It's not wise to work yourself to the point of death because the wealth you're trying to accumulate, he he illustrates for us, it can fly away very quickly. In fact, much quicker than it took to acquire it. It can fly away and leave you forever. A healthy life is invested in more than just riches. But that's not always a lesson that we reinforce to one another. I have to tell you, one of the hardest things I ever did in my life was volunteer to serve as a summer camp director. Now, some of you have been involved in the very summer camp that I had the privilege to direct. For five years, I directed it. Hardest job I ever attempted to do in my life. Do you know that directing a summer camp and conference center is very much like running a farm? You have all this land you have to take care of. You have all these buildings that you need to take care of. You have to order food and all that, except it's not for animals, it's for people, right? And people have more opinions than animals. That's the other complicated fact, you know, with that. But I remember at the time, I was like, this is hard. But we were blessed. All five years that we did that, one of the greatest blessings of doing that job was the staff that we were able to surround ourselves with. And every year I had a task where I had to hire about 25 different people. Some of those people that I hired are in this room right now. I know, they're way, I see you guys, that's right. But that was the best. They became like family. And it was wonderful to be able to work with them you know, side by side. We loved it. It was very hard, but doing that together made it easier. But one of, the, one of the saddest parts of that experience was at times we would have young people, you know, so high school students, college students, that desperately wanted to work there, and their parents would not allow them to. And when I would sometimes follow up about why they weren't allowed to work there, typically the reason being given was this, they could earn more money elsewhere. 
which may or may not have been true. Sometimes it wasn't actually true. Sometimes, no, they could actually earn more money there. But the perception was they could earn more money elsewhere. And so some very good staff members were not sometimes allowed to return for the long haul because their parents said, no, I want you to work somewhere else because you could earn more money elsewhere. So what was being reinforced to their hearts? What was being reinforced to their hearts was that life consists in earning more money elsewhere. Life consists, you know, the value of what you're doing is not, you know, something that you're going to find by being immersed for months and months in a culture that's going to reinforce your faith. That's not of greater value than the money you can earn elsewhere. And I always used to think to myself, I thought, boy, they're really robbing them of a great opportunity that's very hard to get at another season of life. As your responsibilities pile up in life, it's hard to go back to these foundational years and regain that. And it used to break my heart when I would see that. But it's interesting when you look at what Solomon says here in this portion of Scripture, he advises us that that when we do our toil, so whatever your toil is, whatever your work is, whatever labor you're committed to do, when we do our toil, he's advising us here that it should be about more than just acquiring wealth. There should be a deeper purpose behind it. Again, when he says here, he says, do not toil to acquire wealth. The idea of doing your toil isn't just to acquire wealth. There should be deeper meaning to it. Do you know the name Dan Miller? Are you familiar with the name Dan Miller? If you listen to the Dave Ramsey show, you've probably heard the name Dan Miller. His, his book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, is recommended all the time. Well, guess who I had the opportunity to meet and interview this past week? Dan Miller. And so I was talking to him about some of these things, and uh, uh, just about a biblical perspective toward work. And this is what he said. He said that we should be wise enough to select work that aligns with God's calling on our lives. That we should be wise enough to select work that aligns with God's calling on our lives. And he stressed that there is great joy in doing that. And I think Solomon would have agreed. I think Solomon's illustrating that here. I also like Solomon's counsel here where he, he encourages us to be discerning enough to desist so what he's saying is there's a time when it's, it's just time to say enough. You've done enough. Yes, we need to earn a living, right? Yes, we need to feed, clothe, and shelter our families. But eventually, we need to come to a place where we accept that what we have is enough. Because there could always be one more dollar, or one more possession, or one more area of the house that could be added onto or improved or one more car you could have in the driveway, or one more thing. But here's the thing. It's impossible to satisfy the longings of our hearts through the accumulation of things that we can't hold on to forever. And if we're trying to satisfy the longing of our hearts by accumulating things that we don't have the capacity to hold on to forever, eventually we're going to discover it won't work. We're not designed to work that way. Jesus illustrated this in Luke chapter 12. And one of the things, and I'll bring up, a, I'll show you a scripture from that in just a second, but Jesus showed us that it's of no advantage to us to work ourselves to death in the vain attempt to accumulate the fleeting riches of this world, because doing so has the capacity to sap the joy out of life. And we'll end up missing the point of who God is and how He's trying to relate to us as our caring Father. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. He said, consider the lilies. And it's interesting how Jesus ties this right back to Solomon. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? What's the point Jesus is trying to stress to us in that passage? He's saying we can trust him. We could trust the Father. We could trust the Lord to, to provide for us the things that we ultimately need. If the Lord's willing to clothe just fields that ultimately get harvested or chopped up and, and the things that get cut down get burned, if He's willing to clothe fields that have such a temporary nature, how much more is He willing to clothe you? How much more is He willing to provide for you? You don't have to... There is no advantage to working yourself to death. Because if you try to, if you go about life in that capacity, it's basically another way of saying, Lord, I'm never going to come to a spot where I'm content in you. The Lord knows we have to work. The Lord knows we have to provide for our families. But there comes a spot where it's time to say, enough. I'm content. It's of no advantage to us to work ourselves to death, but it is of great advantage for us to trust Jesus who did the work on our behalf that was necessary to reconcile us to the Father. Now, there's one other thing that I want to point out going back to Proverbs 23. And you find it in verses 10 and 11. And when you look at Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11, it teaches us here, don't take advantage of those who are at your mercy. So it kind of starts off with this idea of being taken advantage of, And then it segues to this concept of of ways in which sometimes we deceive ourselves. But then the section that we're looking at kind of rounds itself out here by reminding us, don't take advantage of those who are at your mercy. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11 of Proverbs 23. It says, and I'll explain what this means in a moment, but it says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Think about those verses for just a moment. I'm going to read them again. It says, do not move an ancient landmark. You find yourself wondering, what does that mean? What is the significance of that? Or it says, or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. There is not a single day of my life that I should forget that I am the object of the mercy of of God that's been shown to me in Jesus Christ. I'm an object of the mercy of God that's been shown to me in Jesus Christ. I deserved condemnation. I deserved to be eternally separated from God. But Jesus endured my punishment. He did that for me. He did that for you. And so the mindset that I carry in each day that I live should not be a mindset that forgets that the Lord has made me an object of His mercy, even though I didn't deserve it. Jesus endured the righteous wrath of the Father so that I could become a child of God, so that we could become children of God. So now, as a recipient of the mercy of God, it's His calling on our lives to demonstrate mercy. If you've been a recipient of God's mercy, we're then called to then demonstrate mercy to others. But not everyone embraces that mindset. And it's been said, and I've said it before uh, in just repeating some of the quotes that I've heard about this, but you've probably heard it said, that if you want to find out what a person's really like, give them power. 
You will find out what a person's really like if you entrust power to them, because what it's going to do is it's going to magnify what's going on in their mind. It's going to magnify what's going on in their heart. Some people, when power is entrusted to them, will show mercy, because they're conscious of the fact that they have been shown mercy. But unfortunately, some will use that power to then take advantage of those who are at their mercy. And that's what Solomon was addressing here when you look at these verses, verses 10 and 11. I think Solomon's giving us a good example of that in this passage because he's speaking of people who move ancient landmarks. And when you look at that, it's easy in one spot to say, what does that have to do with any of this? What is he getting at? Well, what he's trying to illustrate is that the powerful would attempt to steal the land of those that didn't have the capacity to stand up to them. So the way they would do that would be by moving boundary markers, property markers. And they would do so, and kind of the implication here is that they would try to manipulate the legal system for their own benefit. And they would try to move these things so that they could take advantage of those that didn't have the capacity to stand up against them. And then Solomon also says here, or enter the fields of the fatherless. Again, he's illustrating those that would go into the fields of the fatherless, those that would go into the fields of orphans and rob them, those that would rob orphans because they seem defenseless, those who would, who, who would fail to show mercy to those who were at their mercy. But here's the thing, in a moment like that, you would look at the orphan, you would look at the person in need, and you would say, are they defenseless? Are they without help? And I think Solomon is showing us here that no believer is ever truly defenseless. Men in powerful positions might try to take advantage of those who seem powerless, but Solomon warns that those who might attempt such activity, they need to know this, our Redeemer is strong. Our Redeemer is strong. The Lord Himself will fight for His children. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see this. This was a video that was circulating uh, just a few weeks ago, but it definitely caught my attention. And because it was short, I watched it several times, but did anyone see video that was circulating a few weeks ago or maybe even a month or two ago of a man who was walking his alligator by a pond and then, the alligator, uh, then an alligator, wait, did I, what did I say? Sorry, he wasn't walking his alligator. I said that totally wrong. He did not have a pet alligator, but I, that's foreshadowing about what was about to happen. Though. He had a puppy. There's a very, very big difference between having a puppy or having an alligator for a pet. And if your children are asking you for a pet, I would lean toward the puppy, then the alligator. (laughs) But he was walking his puppy near a pond, this was in Florida, and an alligator came out of of the pond and got the puppy, just opened its mouth, chomped the puppy, dragged it into the water. I'll tell you the rest of that story next week. Wouldn't that be a great way to boost church attendance, like have a cliffhanger at the end of every sermon? I'm not going to do that, though. The man, when this happened, what would you do, by the way? If that was you, what would that do? Or what would you do? You'd be like, well, you had a good life, puppy. You seemed happy for most of it, right? The man jumped in the water, and he fought the alligator. He grabbed the alligator. Now, it wasn't the biggest alligator, thankfully, but he grabbed the alligator, and he dragged it out of the water, And the alligator still had the puppy in his mouth. And the man took his fingers and he put it in the jaw of the gator and did his best to pull the jaw open. And when he did that, he was able to get it just enough open that the puppy was able to scamper away. And it turns out, you know, now the man's fingers got cut, but not bad. 
And the puppy had a couple little wounds, but they were, the puppy was fine. The puppy, the man sprung into action so quick that it was like the second it happened, he jumped in the water, grabbed the gator, pulls it out, and starts ripping its jaw open, and the puppy gets away. Man is fine. Puppy's fine. And I look at that, and I think, wow. And someone asked me, I shared this story at the earlier service, too, and they said, hey, John, did you think about this? Who was filming that, and why didn't they jump in and help? Because it's very steady footage. I was like... You're right. Somebody was filming that. Somebody the whole time is like, all right, this is where he jumps in. This is where he grabs the jaw. You know, was it his wife? Was his wife? It's like, does he do this all the time? And she's just not phased by it. She's like, oh, he's always jumping in gator infested ponds again. Let me get it this time. The kids will want to see it. Right. But this is what I'm thinking. You know, as I look at something like that, and even as I look at this portion of scripture here, if a man is willing to wrestle an alligator to save a puppy, how much more is our Redeemer willing to, to rescue and defend his very own children? Man's willing to fight a gator, save a puppy. How much stronger is our Redeemer? How much more is he willing to do for you and me as his very own children? He saves us, he defends us, and he identifies us as his own He gives us daily reminders that we are forevermore sufficient in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel teaches us that we find our sufficiency in Jesus. So this world might try and take advantage of us. This world might try and scoop us up. This world might try and attack us. This world might try and deceive us. But our Redeemer is strong. Jesus Christ, our Defender, our Redeemer, remains by our side. We find our sufficiency in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word and to think about these things today. The fact that we have the opportunity to to recognize that our sufficiency is found in your son, Jesus Christ. It's not in how hard we work or how much we accumulate or who we defraud, or where we find ourselves in any given pecking order. Our sufficiency is in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we're grateful for the fact that the message of your Word illustrates that. We're grateful that as we look at at Proverbs 23, we can see the fact that there are consequences that come when you try to find your sufficiency through worldly means. Lord, we see that illustrated in opulent banquets. We see that illustrated in overwork. We see that illustrated in taking advantage of the fatherless. We don't want to go in that direction because we understand that our worth isn't found in anything earthly. Our worth, our value, our sufficiency is found in your Son who has made us a new creation. We are a new creation in your Son, Jesus Christ, as the power of your Holy Spirit has facilitated that. So, Father, we're grateful for that. We're grateful that as we trust in your Son, you make us new. And, Lord, we pray that we would stop labeling ourselves as insufficient. Because if we keep going through life thinking that we need something that this world can offer to try and bolster how we feel about ourselves. We're going to fill our lives with a whole bunch of things that are unhealthy and unwise 
We're going to fill our lives with a whole bunch of things that, that are filled with deceptive philosophies that come from the devil and not from you. But Lord, we want our hearts to just be so saturated with the truth of your gospel that the lies of the evil one can't permeate and can't lure us away from the truth that you've revealed. So Lord, thank you for the things that you've shown us in your word today. We pray that these are things that we would take to heart, and we pray that we would find great joy in our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, the one who has reconciled us to you. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.